Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Hello once again everyone and welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. This is our episode number 130 in our weekly series. I'm your host Rick Cole and each week right here on the Hockey Podcast Network we take a trip back in time down memory lane if you will and we bring you all the hockey news from 50 years ago exactly as it happened reported in the words of some of the greatest sports writers of all time. This week it's May 7 to 13, 1972. If you like what we do here uh, on the Hockey Podcast Network every week and every day on Twitter, you can help us out a lot by going to patreon.com slash hockey50years and subscribe to the podcast. Subscribers get early access to each week's show and we're going to have some very interesting uh, extra stuff that's going to be coming out throughout the summer. Uh, we try and give you stuff that you probably won't be able to find anywhere else. Greater detail on the stories of the day and there's going to be a lot of that going on over the summers as everyone was getting ready for what became known as the Summit Series between Canadian professionals and the Russian players in September. So that's patreon.com slash hockey50years and we thank you for your support. Bit of a personal note for you all this week. Uh, for the first time since last fall, I'm sitting here in shorts and sandals and recording this thing. Uh, the weather has turned very nice and we're really happy about that. Uh, a little bit about my long COVID battle that most of you who follow us all the time know about. Uh, I never dreamed it would go on this long. Uh, I thought most of the symptoms would have subsided. The brain fog is the worst thing. Uh, fatigue is also pretty bad. Today happens to be a really good day. However, I feel pretty good. I noticed two weeks ago when I received my second booster shot that the brain fog and the fatigue seemed to lift somewhat. Uh, my energy level increased. Uh, it kind of took a step back in last week, but today I'm feeling pretty well. And so we're going to try and do a good job with this. Uh, I just bring this up because those of you who aren't vaccinated, please get the shot. I believe it saved my life. I don't think I would have pulled through this without having been vaccinated. And of course, always be careful out there. So this week's show is going to mark more or less the official end of the 1971-72 National Hockey League season as we're going to see the Stanley Cup playoffs conclude with the outcome that almost no one outside of New York really doubted. Uh, the main focus of this episode will be the final games and we'll have some in-depth reporting on that. There's also some off-ice news as well we're going to talk about and uh, we have that September Canada-Russia series developing and a lot of people actually were still unsure if everybody involved could really pull it off. But right now to start things off, let's uh, talk about the Stanley Cup from 1972. The week began with some reaction to the Bruins game four, three to two win over the Rangers on Sunday, which gave them a three one stranglehold on the series. Most of the talk centered on Bobby Orr and his injured knee. And uh, we're going to give you a little bit from Jim Proudfoot of the Toronto Star, who had some uh, pretty good analysis on that. You got a sore toe, right? And you get on a crowded elevator. 
of course, which toe gets stepped on without fail? Well, Bobby Orr just had a similar experience, said the man who's caring for hockey's most celebrated knee these days. That man, of course, is Dan Canner. He's the trainer of the Boston Bruins and now in the tumult of the tiny visitor's dressing room at Madison Square Garden. He was explaining how he had managed one of the most remarkable feats in medicine has witnessed since Dr. Christian Bernard figured out how to replace faulty hearts. He kept Superboy in operation. You see, there's a penny-sized chunk of cartilage loose in Orr's left knee, and and it hurts him. He'll probably have to get it removed by surgery once the Stanley Cup playoffs are over. In the meantime, though, as long as he can stand the discomfort, Bobby Orr is capable of playing with something approximating his customary genius. And that's what he was up to in Sunday's first period when with two picturesque goals he seemed to shatter New York Rangers championship aspirations which had seemed so genuinely bright just a few hours earlier. But as the second period began, or crumpled up to the ice during a New York bombardment, got up with evident difficulty and glided to the players bench on one skate. I thought he'd hurt the knee some more, but he said that wasn't the problem, Canny reported. He'd taken a point-blank shot from Pete Stemkowski right on the inside of the bad knee. It would have been bad enough knock on the healthy knee, but of course on the bad knee, this was ten times worse. During the seven minutes that Orr was away from the rink, Canny applied ice to the darkening bruise, the best means of keeping it from swelling badly, and then wrapped the knee in an elastic bandage. Superboy returned to the fray, and from that point on, he was instrumental in frustrating the New York power play on four of the five occasions it was an operation. And during one of those manpower crises, he created a scoring situation so so gorgeously simple that Don Marcotte had no alternative but to shoot the puck past Eddie Jackman, the Gotham goalkeeper. We got him in the room about a minute to go in the second period and put ice on it again, Canny reported. That meant he had ice for about 15 minutes before playing the third period. This time, he played the period without an elastic bandage. As the match wore on, or was an obvious distress, his blazing speed curtailed, his usual fluid move now jerky and awkward. To put it another way, his margin of superiority over the other athletes on the ice had been narrowed somewhat. He was still the one indispensable man, though, always there to take care of the emergencies. Kenny said there'd be a routine x-ray, but he was certain that it's nothing more than a severe bruise, which of course is bad enough, essentially because of the location of the bruise, but it won't keep him out of any action at this point in time. Proudfoot writes that the worst thing about this irksome knee condition, and as we would come to learn in the coming months and years, this was far more than irksome. Well, the worst thing about it, as Bobby Orr saw it at that time, was that he might be prevented from realizing his fondest ambition, and that is to play for Canada against the Soviet Union's national team in that series scheduled for this September. The fact that Weston Adams Jr., president of the Boston Club and therefore Orr's employer, objects to the idea on principle is not a matter of great concern. Al Eagleson, executive director of the National Hockey League Players Association, will handle that situation when he gets back from a European holiday this week. I wonder if he's really holidaying or whether he was devising more ways to line his pockets, knowing good old Al. Al has committed all members of his organization to this September project and it's recognized in hockey today that what the eagle wants the eagle usually gets however or may simply be physically incapable of participating in the long-awaited showdown with the Russians and Dan Canny explained why. Canny said that you have to understand one thing first. There might not be an operation on Orr's knee at all. The knee problem has to be evaluated first, probably 
after young Mr. Orr takes a short vacation, according to Canny. But then he went on to say, let's say the worst comes to worst and they have to go into the knee and get that cartilage out of there. Now you're talking about a cast to immobilize the leg for six to eight weeks. Now you're into August for rehab. Canny said he estimated that they would be delighted to have him ready for training camp in late September. So obviously, Bob York couldn't be at anything near his peak for matches against Russia in the first week of September. Not if the surgery turns out to be necessary. And anything less than Orr's peak might not be good enough against the mighty Russians. And as admirable as Orr's determination is, would it be fair to expect him to risk his entire career while playing when he isn't completely fit? Of course it wouldn't. Unfortunately for Bobby, as we would learn again in the future, he had already risked his career several times because of this very problem. Tuesday night saw the series head back to Boston for Game 5, and according to most of the stories that were out there at the time, pretty well everybody was figuring the Bruins could wrap this thing up in the fifth game. Boston coach Tom Johnson elected to give veteran Eddie Johnson the nod for this game, hoping the veteran could finally partake in a cup winning game. Tim Burke of the Montreal Gazette has a story about that. After years of ups and downs, 36-year-old Eddie Johnson finally reaches his appointment with destiny tonight. Because he has been far more superior to his more publicized stablemate Jerry Cheevers in this year's playoffs, Bruins coach Tom Johnson has broken precedent and taken Cheevers out of the goaltending rotation to stick with Johnson for what Rangers coach Emil Francis calls the supreme test. A first-generation Irish-Canadian who grew up on St. Antoine Street in Montreal's Lower West End, EJ has graciously endured many a lump and setback to reach the peak of his 16-year career in professional hockey. Now, after two standout performances against the Rangers, the accolades and I told you souls are caressing him from all quarters. Eddie Johnson was always a good goalkeeper, but no one in Boston appreciates him, says Eddie Jackman, the Rangers goalie, after Boston had all but wrapped up the series with that 3-2 win in New York on Sunday. He was there when the Bruins were a weak team, and the writers and fans were always on him when he had 40 shots a game. No one gave Eddie any credit at that time. Then, in a tone indicating resignation, Jackman said, I'm really happy for EJ. I want to see him get the reward he deserves, the recognition. Just about everyone is convinced that Eddie, and all the Bruins for that matter, will get the reward tonight. The scores of newspaper men across the continent spent much of the day yesterday making travel arrangements to go home, certain that Emil Francis has run out of come, comeback formulas. They're a very strong team, an excellent hockey team, admits Francis, adding that to beat the Bruins tonight, the Rangers are going to have to play a perfect hockey game. Nobody can make a mistake against that team. The Bruins' image may not be the shiniest in some regions. Witness how the Jerry Park faithful greeted news of their victory Sunday with a crescendo of boos. But anyone who knows Eddie Johnson has only words of the highest praise. Guys who grew up in the lower part of Westmount like to recall the time when Eddie, then an established star in junior hockey, Walked by Stainer Park one night en route to a date. He was wearing a brand new suit when one of the youngsters shouted to him, Hey, Eddie, we need a goalie or we'll have to call the game off. How about it? Well, you know it. Eddie fastened on the pads, played, and proceeded on to his assignation with three corner tears in his new outfit flapping in the January gusts of wind. Derek Sanderson credits Johnson with being one of the keenest coaching minds around, explaining that Eddie was the one who spotted a tendency of Jockman to drift across the net when someone came in at him on an angle, allowing the shooter a lot of empty net to fire at if he held on to the puck just a little bit longer. 
longer. And Garnet Ace Bailey claims EJ was the man who expedited his transfer from left wing to center after Sanderson came down with colitis by constantly telling him where to go and giving me hell about it. Slowly but surely, Johnson is curing defenseman Carl Vadney of a tendency to pass the puck while the stick is dragging behind his body, often providing an opponent with a breakaway. Eddie Johnson, a great goalkeeper, a very smart hockey man, and Eddie himself says he would like to turn to coaching once his playing days are over. Well, of course, with all that anticipation and all of Boston at the ready for a celebration, the Rangers refused to cooperate and they prolonged the series for at least another game. And we're going to let the great Red Fisher, the Montreal star, tell us the game story. Unpack those golf clubs, Eddie and John and Dallas and Bobby. Cancel that airline ticket, Phil, Ken, Carol and Wayne. Keep the babysitters handy, Don and Jerry and Mike. The Rangers are alive and well and they are fighting. How many among you thought the Rangers, trailing 3-1 in their Stanley Cup series with the Bruins, would come into this city... Boston and stick it to the Bruins three to two after trailing one to nothing and two to one in what could have been the decisive game. Want something even more difficult to believe? How many of you would have thought that Bobby Russo, who approaches games in the Boston Garden with all the enthusiasm of a guy walking to the hangman's noose, would get the tying and winning goals in the third period? Well, he did. I can't believe it, murmured a thunderstruck Eddie Johnson, who had drawn the goaltending assignment and played very well most of the way, by the way. I simply can't believe it. How could this happen? Too many of us were overconfident, I guess. Johnson went on to say just too many players that way. They were in their own backyard. They had their hands around the throats. They were leading them twice. And then Johnson says, how does this happen? I tell you, Eddie says, if we play like that in New York on Thursday, they're going to kill us. We had them and we gave it right back to them. Don't just take EJ's word for it. You want somebody else's opinion? It was a stinker, side Boston coach Tom Johnson. They had more chances than we did on our power play. Explain that to me. Maybe it sounds corny, Rod Sealing was saying in the bedlam of the Rangers dressing room, but I guess we showed him that we won't quit. Corny, he said, but true. And how about Bobby Russo? Sealing says he's the only on the power play for the first two periods, then he's back in the lineup for the third, and he gets two goals. But that's what hockey's all about, isn't it? It's a proper assessment of last night's game in which the Bruins held a 2-1 lead at the end of the first period on goals by Wayne Cashman and Ken Hodge and a New York goal by defenseman Dale Rolfe. But if there's one point where the game started to turn around, it's not necessary to go beyond the 17th minute of the middle period when Gary Doak and Walt Kachuk were hurried into the penalty box within 31 seconds of each other. This would be the killer blow, right? This is when the Bruins, leading 2-1, to one, lock it up with one, maybe even two goals. Brad Park, Dale Rolfe, Bruce McGregor are fine hockey players, but how can they come within several rink lengths of a five-man Boston team comprised of Bobby Orr, Fred Stanfield, John Busick, John McKenzie, and Phil Esposito? You know something? The Bruins didn't have a shot on Jills Villemier for 112 of the 129 that the Rangers were short two men. The best scoring opportunity came from the Rangers' Brad Park, who grazed Eddie Johnson's shoulder and struck the crossbar with a breakaway shot, just as he had done in the fifth minute of play. Boston John coach Johnson says, I can't explain it. We were tight. I don't know why. But this one is over, and the only one that counts is the game in New York on Thursday. And if we're as great as we think we are, that's where we can win it. The Bruins didn't deserve any better than they got here last night. Even the Bruins admit that. But picture this. 
There is one minute and three seconds left in the game when the Bruins yank Johnson. The Rangers promptly take the puck out of their zone, led by Teddy Irvin, but Orr stops him near the Boston net. Johnson returns with 30 seconds left, then races for the bench three seconds later, even though the Rangers have another crack at the empty net. Here come the Bruins with time running out, whacking, chopping, slashing at the puck in the Rangers' goal mouth. Only seven seconds remain when Busick, in a desperate lunge, flips the puck over the arm of a sprawling Vilmier. The puck lands three inches from the goal line, and remains there. You know what? There was no great outcry from the fans. Even they seemed to know that the Bruins had lost this key game long before the final few seconds of the contest. Keep Thursday night open and maybe Sunday afternoon too. Veteran uh, sports columnist Harold Case of the Boston Globe uh, has the home uh I guess, perspective of this game. Uh, Case can be kind of a curmudgeonly sort of guy, but I thought uh, he wrote something kind of interesting there. Here's part of his column on this game. Boston Garden was the scene of a tragic accident last night. An awful lot of people drank their champagne before the Stanley Cup was clinched by the Bruins, and now will either have to settle for a clinching in New York or they're going to have to go out and buy another Magnum for Sunday. The crowd was in a festive mood before the game began, anticipating the coup de grace like a Madame Lafarge sitting by the guillotine, and this mood grew more and more festive until the Bruins blew a 2-1 to lead for two Bobby Russo goals in the third period. Instead of dancing out of the palace, the crowd crawled out, a few weeping, most somber, and a number of creeps shouting abuse at the home team because the Rangers had won 3-2. to two. Emil Francis, the Rangers coach, thanked the Boston fans for throwing streamers on the ice when the Bruins were pressing desperately for the tying goal late in the third period. If a congressional committee investigates... It may discover that the game delayers were fans from New York, not Boston. Who could call himself a Bostonian and be guilty of throwing sand in the big bruising Bruin machine? Bruising? Tom Johnson, the Boston coach, did not think so. We never touched anybody out there, Johnson said. Somebody asked if we had anybody hurting, and I said, how could we? We didn't hit anybody. The killing point for the Bruins, thought Johnson, and the point of reprieve for the Rangers, thought Francis, came late in the second period when the Rangers had back-to-back penalties with the Bruins ahead 2-1. to one. In the four minutes, we hardly had a shot, complained Johnson. When they had us 5-3, to three, I used three men, Park, McGregor, and Rolfe, and after the period, I told our players, when those guys and the goalie can hold the Bruins like that, it's up to the rest of you to win this game. The relaxed air that prevailed before the fifth game will be quite different if there is a seventh game Sunday. Then the faithful will have tight neckties, heart palpitations, and lumps in their throats. But who says it's going to go seven games? And that was the prevailing attitude before Thursday night's game at Madison Square Garden. No one really quite believed that the Rangers could take the series to a seventh game. But nonetheless, there were a lot of nagging doubts even among the Bruins. Even though folks like Phil Esposito had proclaimed that the Rangers could not possibly beat the Bruins in in three straight games. But could they? Now, if Bobby Orr's knee suddenly did completely blow up and at the time... We had no idea how close to reality uh, that was. Uh, We didn't know how bad Bobby's knee was. If the war suddenly became incapacitated, the Rangers actually might be able to make a go of it. Tom Fitzgerald of the Boston Globe had some pregame comments. If the Bruins are seeking an inspirational theme for the Thursday sixth game of the Stanley Cup final, they might well take text from the captain of the rival Rangers. Vic Hadfield said, I think they might have taken us 
for granted. And when you start taking things for granted in the playoffs, that's when the whole damn thing can turn around. Tom Johnson said, we got to do things differently this time. That's for sure. We started taking things too easy after getting a lead. And this is not a team that can play it cozy. Johnson really didn't have any startling strategic plans. And there's no surprise in his announcement that Jerry Cheevers would be back in goal for game six. Jerry should be ready to give us a good game, the coach said. Besides, the other guy, Johnson, has had two tough games in a row. Of course, an epic New York comeback in this series was not to be as history tells us. Jerry Cheevers was simply unbeatable in the Boston goal. Bobby Orr would score the only goal that the Bruins would need, and Boston would claim the 1972 Stanley Cup in six games with a 3 to nothing victory in that final contest. Now, to tell the game story in this one, we wanted first to give you a neutral view. And the great Joe Falls, sports editor of the Detroit Free Press, was at the game, and he's our choice. Joe is mainly a baseball guy, but he's always had a very special affection for hockey, having watched his beloved Red Wings and, of course, the incomparable Gordie Howe for so many years. But before we let Joe tell the story, uh, Jim Coleman had this nugget that we just had to bring to you and this is about a statement made by Cheevers the day before the game. Jerry Cheevers confidently predicted the outcome of the Stanley Cup final 35 hours before referee Art Scove dropped the puck to start the game. Cheevers was one of a dozen Bruins who staged a completely voluntary practice session in their own Boston rink on Wednesday morning. As he skated off the ice at the end of the brief but brisk practice, Boston goalie stopped to chat with George Gross, who is the sports editor of the Toronto Sun. Cheevers said quietly to Gross, George, I feel I'm going to have one hell of a good game tomorrow night. You know that I'm a horse better, and when I'm at the track, I get these hunches every once in a while. Well, I got one of my hunches right now. I expect to be really hot tomorrow night. Well, Jerry's hunches that we all know was a winner, and at 11 o'clock last night, Cheevers were performing a crazy, capering dance of triumph on the Madison Square Garden ice after registering the only shutout in the series between the Bruins and the Rangers. And now we'll get to Joe Falls and his game report. The Boston Bruins ended their year of discontent by smashing the New York Rangers 3 to nothing Thursday night to regain the Stanley Cup. And boy, did they rub it in. Goalie Jerry Cheevers left the ice, shaking like a go-go dancer, all but thumbing his nose at the raucous fans in Madison Square Garden. Cheevers kept goading the fans by waving at them to boo him, and they obliged. They threw all sorts of debris at him and, and pelted the Boston players as they hurried for the protection of their dressing room. The post-game ceremony was one of the shortest in the history of the National Hockey League. They gave the Bruins a cup. Captain Johnny Busick took a quick, cautious skate with it, and then everyone fled from the rink. The New York fans who had been cheering the hometown heroes through the final minute to let them know they still loved them in defeat suddenly turned on the Bruins and tried to even things up by showering them with everything they could get their hands on. Of course, it was too late. The cup was on its way back to Boston, and last spring's shocking loss to Montreal Canadiens in the first round was suddenly long forgotten. The Bruins were laughing as they left the ice champions for the second time in three years. The incomparable Bobby Orr, who scored the first goal and set up the second, was voted the Conn Smythe Trophy as the most valuable player in the playoffs. That made it two MVPs and two tries in the finals for Orr and he won it this time by playing on a gimpy left knee. Wayne Cashman scored Boston's other two goals and Cheevers atoning for the 10-goal bombing the Rangers had given him in his two previous appearances turned aside 33 Rangers shots and he was strong all the way in recording the shutout. 
Phil Esposito inexplicably was shut out again, but that was only a minor annoyance to the Big Bad Bruins, who carried the play to New York and bumped and bruised the Rangers all over their own rink. This is Boston's fifth Stanley Cup championship. They won the best of seven series, four games to two, to earn $15,000 a man. (laughs) And they also left the CBS television network with no TV show to run on Sunday. But mostly... They silenced the angry mobs in the gardens with their overpowering play. The fans were so frustrated that fights were breaking out all over the arena and the friendly folks of New York were spewing profanities at the officials. Young Mr. Ord didn't lose his composure, though. He was the first to take off his gloves after the final buzzer to congratulate all of the New York players. Kenny Hodge and Cheevers both skated to the New York bench to shake hands with Emil Francis, the New York coach and general manager. It was a beautiful moment for all the Boston players who have had to live with all sorts of criticisms and taunts ever since they failed against Canadians last spring. They proved their worth this time, winning 12 cup games while losing only three. We ran out of gas in the playoffs last year, but not this time, said Coach Boston coach Tom Johnson in the tumult of his dressing room. This was a tough, hard-hitting game and the sort the Bruins just loved to play. Even Orr lost his temper for a moment, and he was given a 10-minute misconduct for making some improper remarks about the lineage of referee Art Scove, who, by the way, called 24 penalties in the game. And when the players were not hooking, tripping, or slashing each other, they were mixing it up. The Bruins even won the only clear-cut decision in any of the fights, with Hodge putting it to Vic Hadfield with a barrage of right hands in the first period. The Rangers had their chances... Once, they had a two-man advantage for 48 seconds, and that was immediately followed by a one-man edge for another minute. They all but uh, teed up the puck in trying to put it past Cheevers, but the Boston netminder would not yield. Or, who wound up with five goals and 18 assists in the playoffs, put Boston on the board with a 40-footer at 11-18 of the first period. He whirled away from Bruce McGregor, who nearly stole the puck at the blue line, and ripped the shot past Jules Villemier in the New York goal. It stayed 1-0 despite some great New York pressure until Orr seemed to have scored his second goal at 5-10 of the final period. He drilled a 50-footer, which flew by the screen Villemier. At first, the goal was announced as Orr's, and then it was changed to Cashman, who had deflected it into the net. It made no difference. It was the crusher for the Rangers. A fan had hung a banner on the side of the balcony, which read, Let there be a Sunday. When the red light went on, that sign came down. The handwriting was off the wall for the Rangers. With that... The play became disorganized, Rangers sending everyone up. The Bruins got a two-on-one break. Esposito fed a pass to Cashman in front, and he tipped it past Villamere. The puck just getting over the goal line. That was at 18-11, and the rest of the game was devoted to people scurrying for the exits or those who remain to mount one last cheer for their beloved but losing Rangers. And as we talk about the 1972 Stanley Cup, well, hockey fans, the pursuit of this year's Stanley Cup is on. And DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the National Hockey League, has an unbelievable offer for the most exciting playoffs in sports. New customers to DraftKings can bet $5 on any team to win, and you get $100 in free bets no matter what the outcome, win or lose. Looking to turn a small bet into a big payday during the playoffs with DraftKings same game parlays you can do just that you create your own parlay by combining multiple bets like when uh, which team will win how many goals will be scored and things like that lots more it's it's uh, your shot 
at an even bigger payout. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable. And best of all, you can deposit and withdraw your cash whenever you want. So download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code THPN, THPN for the Hockey Podcast Network. Bet $5 on any NHL team to win and you get $100 in free bets no matter what the outcome. That's code THPN at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the National Hockey League. There are minimum age and eligibility restrictions applying. See our show notes for the details. To wrap up our Stanley Cup coverage, uh, I wish I could do some more. We just don't have the time. What I wanted to give you is some quotes from the players. Uh, The Boston Globe does a wonderful job during the playoffs. After every playoff game that the Bruins were involved in, they had what they called the Cup Quote Board, where they just went around the dressing rooms. I think three or four reporters covering the series, and they got quotes, and then they compiled them all on one page. And we're going to give you some of the impressions that some of the key folks involved in this series had. And first we go to the two coaches. Tom Johnson said, it's a great feeling to the game to get a game like that. The turning point was when we were two men down and we held them off. Cheevers was super tonight. He was super all season. We had to play a physical game. We beat them earlier here with a physical game, but we slacked off in Boston. This was the best all-round game the Bruins have played. I thought Cashman was outstanding. There was nothing surprising about the Rangers' performance. They've been a good team all season, but we expected to win. We seemed to run out of gas in the playoffs last year, but not this time. Rangers coach Emil Francis said that Jerry Cheevers made the big saves. The Cat said the Bruins are a fine hockey team from goal all the way out. I have to give credit to both teams for coming this far. The Cat said he could remember not too long ago when both teams were fighting for sixth place. And it wasn't that long ago. Francis said, I thought this was a close checking game. We had our chances and we didn't cash in. They had their power play chances and they did cash in. You look at them and see how strong they are down the middle, good depth and size. Take a guy like Marcotte who can come off the bench and he helps incredibly. Bobby Orr is one of the greatest players even in such a league as ours. What more can you say than that? This has been a fine series. I would like to try it all over with our injured players completely healthy, but you know injuries are part of the game and you gotta accept them. Jerry Cheevers was answering rapid fire questions and he says the toughest shot I don't even know maybe it was the one Brad Park had in the second period it just dropped at my feet incentive yeah we had incentive there were $15,000 at stake and that's enough incentive for me yeah I deliberately caught or smothered everything I could in the last 10 minutes I remembered back in the Chicago series two years ago when I did that and it worked out okay then Jules Villamere, the Rangers goalie, said, I wasn't screened on the first goal. I knew the shot was coming, and I guessed where it would go. I started one way, and then it came to my left. I didn't see his shot at all, though. On the second goal, it was almost the same. I was screened again, and I didn't see the puck. I think it hit something on the way in. Then I heard it hit the post. The third goal, it just went between my legs. Coming back here to play tonight, I thought we had a good chance to win it all if we could have took this one. Bobby Orr, some quick quotes from him. He said, no, I didn't swear at the referee. Bobby had, uh, as we mentioned, gotten a 10-minute misconduct in the third period or had a wide grin when he did say this. Wayne Cashman had said that Orr didn't deserve the misconduct. But then again, anything Art Scove does, you, you often had to wonder why. Orr went on to say, I don't know that that's a new move I put on Bruce McGregor. A lot of people said the move in which he befuddled McGregor they had never seen before. Or said, I don't know if it's a new move. I just know that I almost got caught. He also said that his knee felt fine and he just didn't feel anything now. Copious amounts of champagne will do that. Bobby's last quote, this is too sweet 
And yes, I do face an operation, maybe the second week in June. Phil Esposito was asked how he felt after the game. One word, terrific. We really wanted it help. We've been a good road club all year. So why should anyone at all doubt that we could uh, win on the road? It's amazing. We've only lost once all season in New York. Phil went on to say when the team puts its mind to it, they can play this game of hockey pretty well. Esposito said the team was tight on Tuesday and then the Bruins, they were very angry at themselves and he said, sure I'm tired, plain tired and I'm tired of hockey. Carol Vadney, who must have felt like he won the Irish sweepstakes, uh, had this comment about being on the Boston Stanley Cup winner. Carol said that he was on a Stanley Cup winner with Montreal in 1967-68, but at that time, he just sat on the bench. Carol said, this is different. I contributed something. We changed men every 44 seconds in the last 10 minutes of the game. We wanted to stay fresh, and we didn't want any overtime in this game. From the Rangers' perspective, we have Brad Park who said that the Rangers had a chance right up until that last goal and that put the icing on the cake for the Bruins. Brad said, the difference was we had our chances and we didn't put the puck in the net. They had their chances and they did put the puck in the net. Brad said, we had some great chances when it was one nothing. I thought I had a goal myself. I shot the puck off my backhand when Cheevers was down. Vadney was down. Then the puck hit someone on the arm and it bounced straight down. I thought it was in, but it wasn't. If you don't put the puck in, you don't win. But I was very proud to play with the guys on our team this year. Playing with these guys was an honor. And we leave it to Vic Hadfield for the final comment on the uh, the game and the series. Hadfield said, the toughest thing I ever had to do in my life was standing there congratulating the Bruins. They're a good hockey team and that's what it's all about. But I wish it had been me on the receiving end of the congratulations. Hadfield said the Rangers were even in face-offs, even in power plays, even in penalty killing. Everything, Vic says, was even, except that they had Bobby Orr. And so we go to the rest of this week's hockey news. Uh, sad incident in the Southern Ontario Junior Hockey League, Junior A League. A player for the Guelph CMCs was fatally injured when he fell to the ice and struck his head in a playoff game against Thunder Bay. There were several conflicting reports of exactly what took place. Uh, newspaper reports in Ontario said that Paul Fendley, 19 years old, had been checked by an opposing player and as a result of the collision his helmet became dislodged and he fell to the ice without head protection. Paul was in hospital for a day listed in serious condition and then his condition deteriorated. He fell into a coma and passed away within the next 24 hours. It was later reported by Paul's mom that Paul had suffered a series series of blows to the head. She counted three over the previous several games, but she said that she felt the team had done everything in its power, in its power to ensure that Paul was in good health and physically capable of playing. Now, the Society for International Hockey Research website has a narrative where in a previous game in the series, Fendley had been knocked out cold by a sucker punch from a Thunder Bay player suffering an orbital bone fracture. The report said that after that game, Paul was fitted with a football-style helmet and face protection, but he had discarded that helmet because it was too heavy and uncomfortable. There is no indication in that particular report whether Paul was wearing a standard helmet that all the other Guelph players were wearing uh, or whether he had had that helmet back on at the time. But whatever head protection he had on apparently did become dislodged, knocked off his head, and his head had no protection on when he fell to the ice. All players in the league had to wear helmets. So we do know that at least going into that play, he did have a helmet on. Now, those who saw Paul Fendley play say that he was a dominant player in the league. And a lot of people felt he had a good future 
in the sport. The Memorial Cup, symptomatic of junior hockey supremacy in Canada, gets underway this week in a new round-robin format. The three teams were the Edmonton Oil Kings, the Peterborough Peets, and the and the uh, uh, Cornwall Royals, I believe it was. They were a part of the Quebec League, not the Ontario League, so they were the Quebec champions. Uh, the Edmonton Oil Kings, repping the Western Canada Hockey League, picked up Calgary Centennials goalie John Davidson, who was the MVP of the entire league, a very good coup for that uh, for that team, he could turn the tide in this tournament. The New England Whalers started the week off by announcing the signing of former Boston College star Tim Sheehy, who's from International Falls, Minnesota. Uh, Tim's a good one. Uh, he is NHL property. His rights belong to the Detroit Red Wings, who had hoped to sign him themselves as well. Here's another interesting note that came out this week. Uh, when you meet Jean Beliveau, you now address him as Dr. Beliveau, if you please. Jean Beliveau has been awarded an honorary doctorate in physical education by Moncton University. According to the newspapers in Kansas City this week, they still haven't figured out their arena situation, and the city council wants to name a sports authority committee to kind of govern uh, this kind of expenditure of public monies on sports. But they're not going to name any people to such committee until the National Hockey League makes a decision on the two expansion franchises, which are to be awarded, I think, near the end of May, around May 24th or 25th. Now, I would think the NHL would want to make sure that a rink uh, is solidly in place before making the call on who's going to get a team. Unless, of course, the fix is in and someone in KC has a connection somewhere on the NHL expansion committee, like maybe the chairman or something. I don't know. It just seems kind of backwards to do it this way. On Tuesday, the New York Raiders, that's Raiders, not Rangers, the WHA team. Why they picked a name to rhyme with Rangers, Raiders, what was that all about? Anyway, they got into the signing act. After naming former Rangers star Camille Henry as their coach, they inked a couple of players, forward Ted Scharf and goalie Peter Donnelly, both of the Jersey Devils of the Eastern Hockey League. Scharf is the property of the Philadelphia Flyers. A little bit of news out of the Junior A ranks this week. Hap M's, if you remember, sold the Niagara Falls Flyers to interests from Sudbury, and the team is slated to move to the northern Ontario city. Well, this week, Hap M's purchased control of the St. Catharines Blackhawks OHA Junior A team from Fred Muller, the purchase price was not revealed. The new St. Catharines executive will consist of M's, Hap M's, as president and owner of the team. His son, Paul M's, will be the general manager and the directors will be W.A. Dr. Biff Potter of Niagara Falls, Harold Hill of Barrie, and Walt McCollum, who is from St. Catharines. The team will continue to be called the Blackhawks and M's said he expected Frank Milne to return next season as the coach few more tidbits from this week. Uh, Boston Bruins goalie Eddie Johnson was said to be in the middle of the Stanley Cup playoffs of all things negotiating a contract with the New England Whalers of the World Hockey Association. Uh, somebody did sign a five-year contract this week and that was with Harold Ballard of the Maple Leafs signing to a five-year contract the great King Clancy, not the play, of course, King 69. He's been Mr. Everything for the Leafs. He took over when Johnny McClellan fell ill this year. He advises on trades. He often gets in the middle of trade discussions, doing a bit of the work for Jim Gregory. And Ballard says that King Clancy has a job with the Maple Leafs organization for life. And speaking of old-time Maple Leafs, here's a pretty good practical joke that was played on former Leaf great goalkeeper Turk Broda this week. 
Turk began receiving calls one morning this week from several people seeking employment as a llama jockey, and the former NHL goalie had no idea why he was getting these calls. But then Broda discovered the calls were replying to an advertisement placed in the Toronto Globe and Mail. The advertisement read, Jockey Wanted for Llama. Call Turk Broda at 241-3562. Now, by the end of the day, Turk had received about 100 answers to the ad at his East End office, where he is a public relations officer for a construction company. It wasn't until later in the day that Mark Cavati, Broda's boss, admitted that he had played the prank. It's all a game, said Cavati. We sure had Turk guessing all day. The gag was prompted by the line which Cavati bought as a stablemate for some of his thoroughbred horses. A lot of people were wondering why the New York Rangers would allow the New York Raiders of the WHA to play games at Madison Square Garden. Well, now we found out why. Uh, several uh, sources reported this. The Raiders, as part of the rental agreement, have assured the Rangers that they will not sign any New York Ranger players. Simple as that. The Ranger players are safe from at least one WHA team. A lot of trade rumors out of Minnesota these days. The most persistent is one that the North Stars are trying to acquire left winger Greg Polis from the Pittsburgh Penguins. The North Stars are reported to be offering center Ted Hampson, right winger Bobby Nevin, and defenseman Ted Harris. Ren Blair, the general manager of the North Stars, has indicated that he would trade his first draft pick to any team if he could get a solid, strong NHL left winger. Polis fits that bill. So maybe the North Stars will swap a first-round draft pick for young Greg Polis. Now, you have to understand, Hampson and Nevin have not yet signed their 1972-73 contract. Ted Harris, however, if you remember, we reported last week, he did just sign his new contract. But like goalie Cesar Maniego, Harris is, does not have a, a no-trade clause in his contract, but he does have an addendum that states that he will be paid more money if the North Stars trade him to another NHL team. You remember back in January that near riot at the Spectrum in Philadelphia involving St. Louis Blues players and some Philadelphia fans? Players were arrested. They ended up going to jail that night, although they did get out. Well, this week, all charges against the three St. Louis players and their coach were dismissed in Philadelphia Municipal Court. Judge Maxwell Ominski dismissed the charges on the recommendation of Assistant District Attorney James Fitzgerald after counsel for the players and the coach read an apology. Al Arbor, John Arbor, Floyd Thompson, and Phil Roberto were cleared of any criminal charges. The coach and players had been charged with disorderly conduct, assault and battery, and conspiracy, and Thompson also faced aggravated assault and battery charges. None of the dependents appeared at the time in court. Their attorney, a fellow by the name of Gilbert Stein, Gil Stein, I think we'll hear that name somewhere in the future, well, he had made an agreement with the district attorney's office they would not have to appear. Charlie Finley in the news again this week. He has denied for the umpteenth time the annual rumor that he's going to pack up his baseball and hockey teams and move from Oakland, California. This time, the move is to Washington, D.C. And Finley says, I'm just sick and tired of all this. Neither the A's nor the Seals are leaving the Bay Area. Now, the speculation seemed to have some grounds this time because there were some positive remarks by NHL President Clarence Campbell during an interview with a Washington paper where Campbell told a, a Washington reporter that Charlie Finley would like to move his teams from Oakland to D.C., Somebody somewhere 
was fibbing a little bit, and I wonder who it was. Philadelphia Inquirer reported that the New York Rangers were set to announce another signing near the end of the week, although they couldn't confirm it as of yet. But it appears that Bill Cowboy Flett, acquired by the Philadelphia Flyers in an eight-player trade from the L.A. Kings last season, will be signing with the Raiders, according to Chuck Newman of the Inquirer. It's also reported that defenseman Brett Hughes may be signing with the New York club, but Hughes says he's not even talked to the Raiders at this point in time. Ooh, this is a close call. A bus carrying the Nova Scotia Voyagers of the American Hockey League slid off a highway near Wellington, Nova Scotia, but there were no injuries. The bus slipped off the road during a snowstorm near a highway interchange about seven miles from the Halifax International Airport. The team was en route to the airport to catch a flight to Baltimore for the fifth game of the uh, Best of Seven American Hockey League final with the series tied at 2-2. Coach Al McNeil hitchhiked to the airport to make arrangements for the team to take a later flight while the players stayed behind in an attempt to push the bus back on the road. Finishing the tidbits for this week, uh, a couple of rumors that were going around. Uh, Bob Pulford could become the next coach in a long line of coaches for the LA Kings. Uh, there were a couple of rumors concerning Bobby Crom, coach of the champion Dallas Blackhawks in the Central Pro, Pro League. Dick Bettos was reporting that Crom was in line to become the first coach of the Atlanta, the Bettos calls them the Atlanta Crackers, who begin playing the NHL next October. Jim Proudfoot of the Toronto Star was saying that Crom may become coach of the Chicago Blackhawks. The thinking by Proudfoot is that Tommy Ivan is thinking of retiring as GM of the Blackhawks. Billy Ray would move upstairs to become general manager and Crom would slide behind the Chicago bench. Another rumor around the playoff circuit has Marcel Pronovo, coach of Tulsa of the Central Hockey League, being named coach of the Buffalo Sabres when Punch Imlac finally announces that he'll only be the general manager from now on. Now, there was another story about Bobby Orr's knee that Proudfoot retired, uh, reported on, and uh, he said that there was a lot of story that Bobby Orr was being pumped full of injections of painkiller to enable him to keep on playing in the Stanley Cup final. And Bruins trainer Dan Canny indignantly denied any of those reports. We want, we're sorry we're going so long this week. Just too much to report. Uh, we want to finish up by talking a bit about the September series between Canadian professional players and the Russian professionals, although they call themselves amateurs. The first uh, mention of this this week came from Sammy Pollock of the Montreal Canadiens, their legendary general manager. Now, the question has been going around, who should coach this team? Pollock had a very unique view on this, and I was a little surprised that Pollock, but then again, most of us in Canada really underestimated the Russian play. Pollock said a figure of stature rather than a strategist should coach Canada against the Russians. Pollock said, if we need a tactical edge to beat them, then we're in big trouble. Pollock says that Jean Beliveau and Gordie Howe would be his two top candidates for the job. Beliveau has coached in the past. He took over for two periods in a game as a replacement when Toe Blake had been ejected. Uh, there was a couple of big news uh, stories about this Canada-Russia series this week. Uh, notwithstanding the comments by Sta Sam Pollock, a lot of people were wondering exactly how and where these games are going to be played. It was pretty well expected that Montreal, Toronto, Winnipeg, and Vancouver would host the four Canadian games. Well, Harold Ballard, the new president of the Toronto Maple Leafs, stepped up with a rather shocking announcement. Hal said that full facilities of Maple Leaf Gardens with any profit will be turned over to the NHL Players Pension Fund, would be made available 
to support the Canada-Russia hockey tournament. And here is a quote from the letter that Ballard sent to Hockey Canada. As the owner of an NHL club and a major arena, I wish to offer my assistance to you in the following ways. One, every player on the Toronto Maple Leafs Club, whom Hockey Canada wishes for this event, has my complete permission to participate as needed with no strings attached. Number two, I hereby offer you Maple Leaf Gardens and its complete facilities for use as a training camp free of charge. And number three, Maple Leaf Gardens is available for any or all games to be played in Canada on a non-profit basis. To be specific, the entire garden share of gate receipts without deductions for expenses of any kind would be turned over to the National Hockey League's Player Pension Fund. Quite an offer from Harold Ballard I wish he had been so strong with improving his hockey team over the years. But you know what? This is really, really something. Here's what Ballard said. Uh, he said, from this World Series of Hockey, it would appear that a substantial profit will be realized. And I trust it will be used to further Hockey Canada's second objective, namely the development of the game here at home. Ballard says he feels strongly that money from this Russia-Canada series should be plowed back into the game at its very roots. I sincerely hope, Ballard says, my confrères on the board of other Canadian NHL clubs, the Players Association, the CAHA, the Canadian Intercollegiate Athletic Union, both levels of government and the public feel the same way and I think everybody did except maybe Alan Eagleson whose wallet got a lot fatter as a result of the September series we all know that and another interesting story there's controversy over the dates of the September series and there were a lot of NHL owners that wanted the timetable shifted and Alan Eagleson actually went to go to negotiate with the Russians at a neutral site somewhere about changing the dates of the series. I had not heard this story at the time. You see, the big complaints of the NHL owners was that this series was going to go right in the middle of training camp, but more importantly, right in the middle of exhibition game season where the players don't get paid and it's all profit for the NHL owners. And of course, those guys don't want to give up any money. So Eagleson, of course, wanting to... Uh, accommodate the NHL owners because little did we know he was right in their pocket at that time decided to go and see if he could change the timetable and simplify things for the owners what he was going to try was to have the Canadian team to play in Russia during the last week of September and then the return matches to be held in Montreal, Toronto, Winnipeg and Vancouver would be played in Canada in December or even January and they're going to ask the Russians to accept such an arrangement and the Russians are going to tell the Eagle to go pound salt. There was little doubt of that. And finally, with all the posturing by uh, the Bruins and Rangers owners about not letting their players play in this, in this particular series, Eagleson said, you know what, it's the NHL Players Association, and if they won't go with this, I will field my own team and I'll get players such as Bobby Orr, Dale Talon, Marcel Dion, Norm Allman, Paul Henderson, Ron Ellis, Mike Walton. They could slide into this series whether you like it or not. And that was the threat that Eagleson made. And we're going to have more on the 72 series. As weeks go on over the summer, a lot of things are going to be happening regarding this series. So that is this week's show, everyone. What did we learn this time around? Well, the Bruins are 1972 Stanley Cup champions. And really, was there ever any doubt? 
The WHA continued to sign players, but the biggest names have not been lining up for the new league's money, at least not yet. They need a really big star, somebody like Bobby Hull, to maybe make the jump. Bernie Perron's experience has been making people hold back a bit. He's got a wonderful new contract and nowhere to play. The September series between the Canadian pros and Russia is starting to shape up and Harold Ballard make a, made a very generous offer to host the games and training camp for free. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. I can't thank Andy enough for all the work he puts into this. Uh, if you want a podcast put together, get a hold of me. I'll put you in contact with Andy. Maybe he can help you out. He's one of the best in the business, a true media professional. The Juno-nominated Toronto Indie Rock Group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our intro and exit music. They're on tour all over Canada and the United States this year. Get a chance to see them. Don't miss it. They put on a great high-energy show. Uh, other musical pieces in the show are, are crafted by Andy Cole as well as the sound effects, and our research comes from files of the Toronto Toronto Star, Toronto Global Mail, and of course our sponsor, newspapers.com, the largest online newspaper resource in the world. And do not forget our other sponsor, the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, Ontario, just steps from the Welland Canal and the shores of Lake Erie. If anybody's in the Niagara area this summer, get a hold of me. We'll have a beer and a burger at the Breakwall. You can find us every day on Twitter at, at Hockey50Years. We have a Facebook page. Our WordPress site is Hockey50YearsAgo.com. And we are here every week on the Hockey Podcast Network. Thanks to everyone who's tuned in to the 1971-72 National Hockey League season. The summer promises to be very interesting with the advent of the WHA and what we will come to know as the Summit Series in September of 1972 and we hope you'll be with us as we watch all of it unfold and on that note we'll see you next time when the